didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think this. you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, and maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think that in a world that's so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, talking about abortion. It was a very tense time. Doctors were wearing bulletproof vests. Doctors were getting killed. The protests were really a powder keg. There had to be some other way. We needed to do something. Local activists on both sides of the abortion issue reveal a secret they've been keeping. Seven's Garvin Thomas has more now. Garvin. Jonathan, it really was a remarkable admission. Three pro-life community leaders and three pro-choice community leaders admitted that they have been meeting secretly for five and a half years. Meeting secretly since the December 1994 killings when John Salvi went in to two abortion clinics killing two women who worked there in Brookline. We were no longer two-dimensional. We were no longer this caricature of pro-life or pro-choice. We were eight women, including the two facilitators, sitting in a room, sharing meals, trying to have this conversation about something deeply important to all of us. None of us felt it changed our views on the subject, but it changed our hearts. How could six women with deeply held positions on one of the most divisive issues in our culture spend more than 100 hours meeting in secret, not change their views on the issue, and still call it a success? What's the point of talking all that time if you're not going to reach a compromise? Well, that's the paradox at the heart of the abortion talks. They don't have an official name, but there's a new documentary about them called The Abortion Talks. So we'll stick with that. For months here at Top of Mind, we have been wrestling with how to tackle abortion. It's the quintessential topic people feel strongly about, and there's certainly plenty of nuance to explore. But for most of us, abortion strikes at the heart of our deepest beliefs, and we really struggle to even want to understand the opposing view, let alone listen with curiosity or compassion. So with that in mind, I just couldn't see how an episode of Top of Mind exploring the arguments for and against access to abortion would really be all that helpful. And that's when it occurred to me that instead of talking about abortion, we could devote an episode to how to talk about abortion. In the 90s, things were escalating. This is a clip from the Abortion Talks documentary. Brookline, Coolidge Corner on... Saturday mornings, there would be protesters. As a daily breaking news general assignment guy, it's Saturday, the boss would say, you're going to Brooklyn, there's a protest over there at 11. Boston was in some ways the epicenter of tension for this. It's a highly Catholic city, I think 36% Catholic. The rhetoric the leaders would leverage and weaponize against the other side had become more and more heated. It was intense. It felt Kind of like a powder keg. So something, something had to give. There had been a 10-year period of some pretty serious attacks on abortion clinics. Culminated in the worst one the country's ever had. On December 30th, 1994, a man named John Salvi shot and killed two women and injured five other people at abortion clinics in a Boston suburb. I was doing some things in the kitchen and had the radio on and heard it. And I was just horrified and shocked. This is Barbara Thorpe. I am a social worker and was the director of the pro-life office for the Archdiocese of Boston. As a leading voice against abortion in the Boston area at the time, Barbara Thorpe and the Catholic Archdiocese felt an immediate need to distance themselves from the murders. This was totally antithetical with anything that the pro-life movement would uh, support or condone. So it was important that that strong message go out. The archbishop prepared a statement that Thorpe helped hand-deliver to all 400 parishes in time for Sunday Mass. It was a message expressing his deep uh, distress and concern over what had happened. And he also 
Um, I took an action which was much criticized by some at the time of calling for a moratorium on any of the activity outside of the clinics as a sort of sign of we needed to cool things down. On the other side of the issue, pro-choice activists in Boston were also in crisis mode. Melissa Kogut was the brand new executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts. We really were the political arm of the pro-choice movement in Massachusetts. So when the murders happened, it was the week between Christmas and New Year's, and I was in Connecticut. I was visiting my boyfriend's family. This was before cell phones, and I didn't hear about it. Uh, Somehow somebody tracked me down and... Um, I immediately turned, you know, turned around and went back to Boston because I knew um, people would be looking to us for leadership, comfort, what's next. So that was pretty daunting and awful. Were the two of you acquainted personally at this time? No. No. Um, I actually had never met any of the the leaders on the pro-life side uh, until our project. How about you, Barbara? Um, I think the same would be true. Nikki Nichols-Gamble was the director of Planned Parenthood, um, executive director at the time, and immediately struck me as um, just terrible that she was probably walking distance from where my location was and that I had never met her. I had never spoken to her. And that was, you know, on, on me. I had never attempted to reach out and uh, had never tried to initiate anything on my own. That was about to change. Barbara Thorpe and two other prominent pro-life advocates, a Catholic attorney named Francis Hogan and Madeline McComish, head of Massachusetts Citizens for Life, were each approached by an organization called the Public Conversations Project to meet with their counterparts on the opposite side of the issue. Barbara Thorpe said yes quickly. It really seemed like an opportunity that we needed to take. Melissa Kogut, on the other hand? I was a little skeptical when I first heard about this opportunity. I mean, I didn't really know what it was going to be, but to my mind, it was, we're never going to change our minds. So what's the what's the point of this? But she agreed anyway, along with Nikki Nichols-Gamble, who was president of Planned Parenthood in Massachusetts, and Ann Fowler, a pro-choice Episcopal priest. It was four meetings, that's all we agreed to. And... We met in secret. Nobody was supposed to know about it. Why? Why was the secret important to you, Melissa? Um, for me, it was important because I didn't, I didn't think others would understand. That they would think that I was wasting my time. I did let my board know in the beginning that I was going to be doing something like this, so I had their support. But I never, ever talked about it after that. It was ironclad. We all agreed to it. I think Barbara could speak from from her perspective. Yeah, I I think this level of um, of confidentiality and privacy was really critical. Of it really was a very fraught time, and uh, to have this uh, com- it really critically important conversation without the worry or the concern of. Were we going to be having reporters call us and questioning us about what was going on or that we could just focus on this very early, tender development of a relationship with people that we had deep, deep differences with? And Barbara Thorpe, what did you hope would be the outcome of these meetings? I mean, did you go in kind of hoping maybe you could actually change some minds? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, but the but on the other hand, um, you know, I think one of the things that was very important in, in to enable us to participate was not only was it not about trying to change minds, it was not about even reaching some kind of common ground. Um, that we weren't looking to come out kind of singing kumbaya um, and that patting ourselves on the back or something like that. We had seen um, this horrific attack. So I I think it was more that a sense of there had to be some other way. Exactly. And I I think 
we were surprised by these first four meetings because we signed up for more afterwards. <laughs> yeah. What, describe a moment that surprised you, Melissa, in those first four meetings where you started to feel yourself cracking open to the possibility of, of, of more. Well, it was utterly engaging. Um, I actually walked in thinking I knew everything I needed to know already. And then I realized this is really interesting. I think the first thing we did was we had dinner together, um, which was really humanizing. And most of our gatherings, if not all of them, started that way. That was really important. Um, And one thing that stood out was the conversation about buzzwords, because if we were going to talk to one another, um, even the words pro-choice and pro-life were on the table for discussion, because we didn't use the term pro-life in our materials and our conversations because um, because we felt we were pro-life too. So it was a huge concession on our part to use use that word. And uh, Nikki on our side never, never did. And likewise, Barbara, if I could just have you chime in, was it also a huge concession on your part to 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 use the word pro-choice? No, I don't recall it as much. I, I was probably already using the term pro-choice um, at the time. Did it feel did it feel important to you that that someone like Melissa would 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 use that term even though it was so bothersome to her? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I, I love Melissa uses this, you know, humanizing and dehumanizing because it was the humanity of the other, all of us in the room that we were, we were no longer two dimensional. We were no longer this caricature of, you know, pro-life or pro-choice. And that's what drew me back, you know, and as I was uh, so just taken with the opportunity to get to know these women who I would never have had um, on my own initiative in a very, um, very personal way. Obviously, we talked about the issues, but we also shared our lives with each other. And um, that was, you know, a very, um, it's a real gift. Melissa, you mentioned that you found it just deeply engaging, fascinating. Yeah. Was there a moment that you can recall where you felt it changing you? One fundamental change was how I viewed people from the other side. I always thought they weren't educated or intelligent. Um, I made big assumptions that because they were religious, they were sheep or something like that. Um, And I, each of the women who we had so much in common in a way, this group, because we were all leaders in our causes, very strategic, smart, political, successful. And, and it, it, it showed in our conversations, you know, they were they were very thoughtful and that just blew me away. I mean, did that at any point make you want to reconsider or force you to reconsider your own position on abortion itself? No, it didn't. Um, Not at all. Did you think you became a better advocate? I do. And clearer about what my role was as a spokesperson and leader in the movement. Um, We had a good cause. We don't need to denigrate others, others' beliefs. Did that, did that leave the room for you then? Can you recall a situation where after having begun these dialogues, you were out, when you were out in the course of doing your job, doing interviews or speaking at rallies or whatever it was, that um, you sensed yourself behaving differently? Yeah, I was on a radio show. I can't remember what station. Um, I think it was with Madeline. Um, and we were being pushed by the interviewer to engage in a debate with one another in a, in an aggressive way. And I, I just remember not, I'm not, that's not what my role is here. It's not what I, I am here to do. So you might have prior to the dialogues, you might have been, might have, 
I might not have, but I might have. Mm. <laughs> it certainly, I'm sure, affected things mm-hmm. that you and Madeline actually knew each other quite intimately yeah. <laughs> at this point, yeah. unbeknownst maybe to the radio right. Right. viewer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. How about you, Barbara? Did you did you at, at any point sense yourself doing your work differently as a social worker, as an advocate? I think that, as Melissa said, we... We didn't change our, in fact, I think all of us would would say that we were more passionate about our position and more um, engaged. But I think part of that was because we were really encouraged at all of the meetings not to debate the subject, but to look for deeper understanding. So we were always asking the other person, can you tell me more about how you see that, or I want to understand more, or I don't understand this. Can you speak to me? It wasn't, you know, the typical way that you're in a conversation over something where you're divided on is you're, you're already planning your rebuttal to somebody while they're still speaking. You're ready to come out hard. Was that difficult to, to learn, Was uh, to kind of get the hang of, Barbara? It definitely was. It definitely was because you're you're so sort of hardwired as a person is saying something and, and, you know, to be thinking, good grief, you know, how could they possibly think like that? That is, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So there were different sort of um, just rewiring, you know, to be really unafraid to ask the deeper questions so that was much more... um, much more challenging. Um, and I think through that process, the refinement for each of us of having to explain ourselves um, and our beliefs in a deeper way, I think it grew our own passion for our point of view. After about four years of meeting secretly, they wanted to start telling people what they'd experienced. But it took another year to agree on how to do that. Ultimately, they published a joint article in the Boston Globe at the end of January 2001. Talking with the enemy was the headline. It got a huge response. The women were invited on TV and radio and spoke at community events. Both Melissa Kogut and Barbara Thorpe were surprised at the reaction. I can remember one woman coming up to me at an event and saying, you know, um, it's not about abortion, but I have had such difficulty on another subject within her family. They were deeply divided about. And she said, this gives me so much hope. And I, I could not have imagined that, that somebody was, you know, translating this to something that was so personal to them and, um, and would bring hope. So I was very touched by that. Melissa? Uh, was there any aspect of the response to that yeah. article? Yeah, um, I mean, we got tons of feedback from our supporters that they were so pleased that we had participated. I was incredibly moved by a letter we got from the editor of the Boston Globe who told us that this was a highlight of his career, that he was so proud to have published this and you know, we just felt really good about it. There was a lot of positive, a lot of positive ripples um, out there. It seemed that there was sort of this intense relief that these people who were so divided on something clearly actually liked each other, um, laughed together with each other. And I think people so appreciated it and just were relieved by it that sort of these groups of people who represented such differing points of view seem to have a very nice relationship. Uh, Friendship? Barbara? Oh, sure. We do come together as a group still at least mm-hmm. a couple times a year. Yeah. Really? Just just mm-hmm. to get together, not to talk about abortion, just to, no, just right. to be together. Right. Barbara, Melissa, thank you so much, both of you, for your generosity and for sharing your story with us today. Thank Thank you. you. Barbara Thorpe, Melissa Kogut, and the four other women who joined them in those conversations are featured in a new documentary called The Abortion Talks. It was their article in the Boston Globe that caught the attention of filmmaker Josh Sabe. At the end of their article, 
they said this. They said, in this world of polarizing conflicts, we have glimpsed a new possibility, a way in which people can disagree frankly and passionately, become clearer in heart and mind about their activism, and at the same time, contribute to a more civil and compassionate society. I mean, if this is true, it's pretty amazing. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. My name is Josh Sabe. I'm married to Sarah Perkins. We are a filmmaking team. I'm Sarah Perkins. I'm one of the co-directors on this project. The Abortion Talks. Why did you choose to tell this story? What led you to the Abortion Talks as a, as a subject of a documentary that you wanted to make? Well, we knew we wanted to make a documentary about polarization in, in this country. My brother actually sent me the original article that these six women wrote. Um, and I read it and we started reaching out and got in, in touch with eventually all six of them and started the process of, of making the film and telling their story. Were you already making this film before the Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs that overturned Roe versus Wade and left abortion up to states? Yes, yes. In fact, when we first started making this film, looking for you know support and funding or whatever, uh, <laughs> we got some feedback. First, that abortion was a tired issue and nobody was talking about abortion anymore. <laughs> uh, and second, that the characters were too old and not interesting enough. Um, and I think we, you know, both of those are manifestly untrue. <laughs> you couldn't have known that it would become as relevant as it is in this very specific moment. What do you see as, as the importance of this film for this moment in America? Yeah, I in preparing to make this film, we watched every single abortion documentary that we could possibly find on every single streaming platform. And because of that, I can confidently say this is the only abortion documentary I know of that makes a sincere effort to present both sides with dignity and fairness and interest. And I think it is very likely the only abortion documentary in the world, the only documentary in the world that a pro-life activist and a pro-choice activist can come out of the theater with a newfound respect and understanding of the person sitting across the aisle from them. And I think that's important. And that's what makes this movie and this story matter right now. And what's so interesting is, is that it's not, I wouldn't actually call it a documentary about abortion or abortion right, rights. Right. It's a story about how to talk about abortion in a way that can do something other than just divide us. <laughs> it's about a conversation and it's about, you know, six very brave women who who decided to do something that was very hard. Um, and in that sense, yeah, I think absolutely it applies to people who are struggling to talk about abortion but also really anybody who is really struggling to figure out how to have difficult conversations with people they really care about. Um, the, the nuts and bolts of the talks themselves, I found quite fascinating uh, because they were not at all freewheeling. They were very structured. Um, you have one of the facilitators uh, featured prominently in your film, Susan Poziba. And I want to play a clip where she's talking about one of the first things they did when they all came together. And the women talk about how they were like they were terrified to go to this meeting. Like, what's going to happen? I've never sat across the table from these other women. And, you know, there was just this terrible shooting, these murders that everybody's angry. It's like, it's just a big emotional thing. They go to some basement in somebody's house and they're meeting. It's all cloak and dagger, very secret. And some of the earliest meetings, I get the impression from the film, were taken up with a lot of sort of like laying the ground rules, which is a really important part of the dialogue framework that um, that these talks laid out. So here's a, here's a moment in the film where Susan Podzebo, one of the um, facilitators, is explaining how she, how they had the group list off all of their hot button words unborn child, feminazi, murderer. We listed out, you know, maybe 100 or 200 words on flip charts, and we posted it all around the room. And then we said, now we want you to discuss the issue of abortion without any of those words. I remember at one point thinking, we're not going to be able to talk about anything because every word we use is unacceptable one way or the other. So one of the things that we did was come up with a vocabulary they would agree to in order to be able to have a conversation. And on that one, we used the term human fetus, which nobody loved, but was the best we could approach for a word to describe that which is removed from a woman during an abortion. 
It's a clip from the film and documentary series, The Abortion Talks. Uh, Josh, what, what struck you about about how these conversations played out? What what made them effective? Yeah, so you mentioned Susan, and the other moderator was Laura, and she she used to say something like, um, "Structure sets you free." <laughs> they really believed that structure would allow them to to really talk about the issues, and without the structure, they'd, they'd get caught up in a lot of a lot of the same ways that we all get caught up when we try to have hard conversations. Um, so they, from the very beginning, had lots of structure. I think it's a it's a misperception that a lot of people have that the way to fix polarization in our community or in our nation is to go and talk to your neighbor or go make friends with a Republican or a Democrat. And that's just not the case. What people have found over and over again in studies is that actually makes polarization worse and it makes you dislike people even more. Um, and I think they realized that early on going into these conversations, that if they were just going to open this up as a free-for-all, people were just going to shut down and, and the project would be a failure. Um, so one of the things that I hadn't realized until reading more and, and learning more about this conversation that I thought was really smart was they started each meeting with the dinner. Um, I just thought that was such a clever way of, of humanizing other people and of creating communion <laughs> around around a meal before you even get down into the basement to talk about the issue at hand. Um, and they were able to not only like each other, but really accomplish something important together, which is to change the rhetoric of around the issue of abortion in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. There, and there's actually a moment, it, it came pretty early actually in their, in their six years. I think it was about a year into their meetings. You have this section in the film where there's the memorial service on the one-year anniversary of the shootings, the the murders. And uh, one of the participants, Nikki Nichols Gamble, who's the head of Planned Parenthood, is um, speaking there. Uh, and, and and you had two of the, the pro-life members of the dialogue group come and are, are in the audience, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but the women in the film describe this as a real turning point. Uh, let's listen to a bit of that. Nikki and Anne spoke at the memorial. Melissa was there as well. And Nikki saw them in the audience and was very moved. Instead of seeing the whole pro-life movement as wanting to harm her, she saw two women that really cared about her. Afterwards, she said, I could have used this as a fundraiser. I could have said, we're under attack. We need your support. But she was moved to say what she did. The prayers of those of you who agree with us and the prayers of those of you who profoundly disagree with us made the difference in moving from the darkest hours of our corporate and personal history toward a new and brighter day. That was a clip that was on every news station that night. It felt like a triumph. We had achieved enough respect for one another to be able to do the most human of things, which is to join others who are grieving and feel free to express our support and our sorrow with them. In the heart of the darkness, to see that light. Eventually, we became friends. Strange though it may seem, even to me, but we did become friends. It's a beautiful moment in the film, Josh. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing moment. Um, you kind of said, like, yeah, I mean, they showed up. <laughs> you know, like, it doesn't seem that big of a deal. But I think it was a huge deal um, to them because this, you know, they might be, from a pro-life leader perspective, showing up might feel like you're accepting some responsibility or, you know, might look bad. Or, you know, there's all sorts of this baggage it could contain, and yet they had enough respect for each other to to show up and to sit and to, um, you know, participate in the tragedy and to really feel the tragedy. You know, going back through the archival material, there was an article that was published in the Boston Globe shortly after that speech a couple days later. Um, and it was an opinion editorial in the Globe. And the title was like, have we found common ground on abortion? Maybe not, but the rhetoric has changed. Um, and so I think there was 
what that moment represents to me is that there was a real recognition that the conversation or the the rhetoric coming out from the leaders had shifted mm. um, and had become more ecumenical and more appreciative of the other side in ways that that it just hadn't been previously. And this was even uh, long before the women went public with their talks. Yeah, exactly. Even before the the story had broken, you know, years and years before the story had broken, there was an awareness that there had there had been a shift that these these women were making a real effort to change things. Um, there was a real light bulb moment for me to, trying to get my head around like how just being in a room and talking about why you feel so strongly about what you about this issue would lead to such close bonds. Um, and there's a moment in the film that you capture with Susan Podziba, again, one of the uh, facilitators, where she says she struggled to figure that out too for a long time. And then she had this, um, came to this realization. So I want to share that. This is Susan Podziba from the film, The Abortion Talks. There was a connection across difference that nobody would ever have thought was possible. It took me eight years to figure that out. I would leave a meeting and I would say, what is that energy? What is that? What in nature exists that will help me understand this bond across unbridgeable gaps? And I wound up talking to an MIT physics professor who said, you're talking about nuclear energy. An atom has a nucleus. The nucleus has protons and neutrons in it. The protons should repel because they have positive charges. But if they're close enough, the nuclear force holds them together. That's how I came to understand what was happening in the room, is that if you bring passionate people close enough together, even though they would ordinarily repel, they can connect and create something very powerful. Josh, how did that uh, metaphor strike you? Yeah, I mean, you're not the first person to to say that that was a light bulb moment for them. I, I mean, several people have approached me after watching the film and um, come with that that exact moment. Like that, that was like a profound realization for me. Um, and so I, th- I think we're all watching this. We're we're trying to figure out like what. So what? Like why do these talks matter? Right? Like what did they accomplish? And this sort of gets gives us at least the, I think the beginning of an answer where you realize that like there's this profound energy and connection that can exist across difference, right? Um, they're often, you know, in like rhetorical theory, you know, called cross-cutting structures. This is the way in which people meet across difference, mm-hmm. right? Um, churches are often cross-cutting structures for people of different political beliefs. You know, lots of civic organizations, you know, have historically been these really important cross-cutting structures that maintain a country um, and civility and, you know, it stabilizes us. Um, and, you know, on a personal level, it stretches us. It also helps us become more secure in our own opinions as we're able to navigate them. We become more comfortable and more powerful. You began to understand that this actually really mattered and what they accomplished was actually really profound. Josh Sabe and Sarah Perkins are filmmakers of The Abortion Talks, which is a new documentary that's now available for screening by any group, a church, school, community. It comes with a discussion guide and sometimes even the participation of some of the women who were part of those original talks. To get more information on that, go to abortiontalks.com. And next, we'll get practical advice on how to dialogue about big issues rather than debate. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The women who brought the six activists in Boston together for dialogue were named Susan Pudziba and Laura Chasen. We've heard from Susan already in those documentary clips. Laura died several years ago, but the organization she founded is called Essential Partners, and it continues to build on the framework they established with the abortion talks. John Saroof is co-executive director of Essential Partners. When people go through a dialogue and realize I actually care about that person on the other side that I thought was a stereotype, that is one of the most freeing and beautiful things you can witness. It's really the gift of being a facilitator. It's the gift that I get every time I do this. 
Essential Partners now has trained facilitators like John Saruf, leading dialogues in 20 different countries. Most are not about abortion. They're about guns or immigration or police or schools, really anything that divides a community. But abortion is the issue they started with in Boston in the 90s. Our founder, Laura Chasen, uh, was watching one of these debate shows where there are two people on either side of a moderator, pro-life, pro-choice. And in a minute and a half, it, uh, it, it turns into chaos with all four people you know, yelling over each other. It was that video clip that prompted her to go to her colleagues. They were a group of family therapists. And they were looking at this conversation that was happening in the world and they were saying, oh, that looks an awful lot like what we see when we're doing family therapy and something escalates when somebody says something and somebody responds in a particular way and they get stuck in this escalating cycle. We have ways to deal with that. So they started to experiment and they called their first set of experiments and for the first 20 some odd years of our organization we were called the Public Conversations Project. When the women who were in the abortion talks went public, it was the article that they wrote that I studied in grad school that that actually turned me on to the idea of dialogue It was assigned to me in my uh, um, intercultural conflict class. Uh, And I'm sitting there reading all of these books about wars and about conflicts in our own country. And I'm thinking, how does anybody talk to somebody who's done those things to them before? And then I come across this article and here are these six women talking about talking to each other after having been in a place where they really saw each other as the enemy. And I thought this, this is the answer that I've been looking for. This, uh, something is going on here that unlocks a mystery for me and really becomes my life's work. What is it about abortion, do you think, that, that makes it in particular so difficult for, for people to talk about? These are our most fundamental values at stake. For some people, it is life or death. For some people, it is at the heart of their beliefs about um, how we value human life. For some, it is about autonomy and control over one's body. And when you uh, go that deep, you're going to have a difficult time talking about that. So why try? Why, why dialogue instead of sort of, I mean, most people don't talk about abortion. <laughs> you see the people on both sides sort of yelling and there are like very loud voices. But I think it's fair to say that most Americans try to avoid bringing that up or talking about it for this very reason, right? It just doesn't seem like it's going to end well no matter how you try. So why should everyday Americans risk it? Because it's so important. Because people are making decisions about how people live and, and what they can and cannot do. And in a democracy, we believe that people should have some say in that. And it shouldn't just be on voting day. We actually have to have these conversations every day. And I think the reason that people are so scared of having these conversations is that we don't know how to do it well. And when we've tried to do it, we've set it up in such a way that it actually becomes pretty toxic and divisive. I mean, When we watch these conversations on TV, they're set up that way. Of course, you're going to have people yelling at each other. But actually, if you look at all the data, there are a lot more people who actually have far more nuanced uh, beliefs about this than than, uh, most people would uh, believe. And we actually have a lot more overlap and common ground on this. But when a conversation is broken... You can never get to that place. So what is the goal? What, what, sh- what should be the goal? 
Because the, the abortion talks, um, you know, in, in the 90s, none of these women changed their minds. In fact, they became even more sort of secure in their pro-life or their pro-choice views, right? So, right. so what is, if, if you're not actually, if there's the possibility that there won't be common ground, do you still go in looking for it? Uh, it depends. Uh, if people want to try to find common ground and that's what they're there for, of course, we'll support them in having that conversation. Does common ground often get found in dialogues because people have spoken in ways that they weren't speaking before and revealed more information where they begin to see their overlapping interests? Absolutely. Is it the reason or the purpose that we go into it for? No. And so why do it? Well, in certain cases, like in this one, it is to bring down the temperature of what had become a violent conflict. Mm -hmm. And that worked. Second, uh, for the women who did this, they cite that the relationships that they built across these differences were fundamental to their own lives. When people go through these dialogues, they actually both humanize the other people, but they themselves feel humanized. Beyond that, there is so much more we have to work on together. If these women were to speak and talk about all the things that they care about, they would probably find a lot of issues that they can advocate together on. If they can't talk about it because they are divided on this one issue, then they could never get to the place where they might both advocate for more women's health or where they might both advocate for sanctuary laws or where they might both advocate for making it easier to adopt children. Right? Oh, that's really interesting that, that by, by willing to go to the hardest topic <laughs> and at least find some humanity in one another on that topic, that it can open up the space to deal with other topics that you can agree on. And so that, you know, because I, I was intrigued in this in this guide um, that Essential Partners has recently published, a guide to dialogue about abortion. There are, I don't know, six or seven very specific one-page kind of outlines of here's a kind of dialogue you might consider having and here's how you might want to approach it and here are some of the questions you might want to ask. Right. And one of them doesn't really seem to fit because it's not explicitly about abortion. It's a conversation about serving families well in your community. What is what is the connection there? How, how, how does that fit in a guide about abortion dialogue? So what's interesting about some of the dialogues that we have in our country is that we think it's about one issue. We say we disagree about abortion. But the, the truth is that we're actually, uh, there are other conversations underneath that conversation. And this particular one, I think, really gets to the heart of what do we mean by treating each other and life with dignity? And how do we live our lives in a community, no matter what the law is? How do we find ways in a community, in civic life, in our personal lives, that we support the thriving and dignity of human life and families in our community. So in, in some ways, this is a dialogue that gets even deeper than the sort of legal pro-choice, pro-life conversation. Right, and at what trimester and at what, because right. you know, I, think, I think you're right, like a lot of times we talk, like if we're gonna talk about abortion, okay, that must mean we're going to talk about, you know, at, at, at what point does life begin and under what exceptions should we allow or not or disallow it? And, right. and what you're saying is let's like broaden our yes. scope a little bit and think about yes. housing and hunger and, you know, access to health care and, you know, public safety or whatever it is, right? Or, 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 um, or adoption or foster care where we might actually, you could find people who are pro-life and pro-choice very much on the same side working together towards something. Absolutely. And we're losing the opportunity to work on many of those issues because the very champions of some of those issues are divided about this one. 
Can you describe for me, I know most of the dialogues you've led have not been about abortion. Do you have an abortion dialogue that you could describe for us in a community? Yeah, I I did one at at a Christian school. This is a a fairly evangelical community. Mm -hmm. Um, So like high school or? uh, uh, This is college age. Their goal was partially to learn about dialogue, but partially to see whether they could have this conversation that had become quite difficult for them to have. It surprises me that it would be all that difficult to have this conversation where you would kind of assume that everyone sort of shared a similar position. It's like, well, we're pro-life if we're a conservative Christian community. Well, that's what's so interesting about it. And I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I actually find that dialogues within a particular side or within what we tend to think of as a group that's really monolithic and has all one opinion about something, some of those conversations are the most difficult mm-hmm. because the truth is that our our beliefs are more nuanced. And if we uh, step outside of the assumed position we are scared of being thrown out. And so, yeah, it becomes a very difficult conversation. And so what is your strategy? First of all, you've got to make the idea of diversity of opinion normal and um, help a community see that it's actually important for there to be the possibility of difference in in that community, and that that is that our our differences actually make our community stronger rather than weaker. Um, and the other is you want to maybe make some space for people to tell stories, tell their own story about themselves and how they've come to their position. You may also want to help people talk about their core commitments to their community to begin with. Before you even talk about the issue of abortion, you may ask them, talk about a place in this community where you volunteer and you, um, you, you contribute to the community. Talk about the, you know, um, some person in this community that's really important to you so that we begin to see each other in fully human ways and we don't get identified with just this one belief or this one difference. Mm. So what happens is conflict flattens people, right? When we can come into conflict, you become just that position. What we're trying to do in dialogue is to make people fully human. And in that dialogue at that Christian college, did did was there a moment where emotions ran high? Things it oh, looked yes. like it might turn into debate and how do you manage? How did you handle that? Yes, we in this particular dialogue had a moment when um two people started to go really back and forth raising their voice. Uh, at each other. You could see it in their face. It sort of turned red. Everybody else sort of, you know, shrunk back in their chair. And um, what do you do? You lean in gently. You ask them to take a pause, take a breath. You go back to your purposes here. You normalize the idea that we're talking about a really important thing. You all are being incredibly courageous to have this conversation to begin with. But let's let's remember what the purpose here is. The purpose is not to convince each other of your opinions, but to more deeply understand each other and be understood. So we'll just take a moment, and I want us to think about the next question we ask. I want it to be a genuinely curious question. What is it that you're curious about that would help you understand something more about what this other person believes and why they believe it, not just a question or a statement trying to convince them that they're wrong. Was there a moment in that dialogue or in another dialogue that you facilitated where it felt like a breakthrough? Yes. I can talk about a dialogue that I did between... um, different people on how we deal with guns in America. First of all, I saw two people go up to each other after the dialogue and embrace each other. 
two people who I knew were on very different sides of this conversation. And afterwards, one of them came up to me and, and he said to me, John, I've spent the last 16 years of my life being one of those people online, being an online troll, going after anybody who ever disagreed with me or trying to take away my rights uh, around this issue. I no longer want to live like that. And I, I now have so much respect for the people who came to this conversation. I want to live my life differently. How often does that happen? Honestly, it happens all the time. I, I, because people go through the world feeling really misunderstood, feeling alienated on the, other, uh, on the outside. And when people go through a dialogue and come out and realize we have more in common than we, than we have difference, and I feel like I'm no longer... So on the outside, I, I, actually, I actually belong here. They have a deeper level of trust with each other as they walk out the door. And there's nothing more fundamental than that. John Saroof is a dialogue facilitator. He's co-executive director of Essential Partners. And they have a whole bunch of free resources for dialogue on their website, including a guide to dialogue about abortion that we've referenced in this conversation. That website is whatisessential.org. John, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. By the way, the abortion talks actually helped to inspire our new series of conversations on Top of Mind called Stick With It, where we talk to people who've encountered a perspective or a situation that challenged them, maybe in a big way. And instead of getting defensive or shutting down, they chose to stick with that discomfort, to stay open and curious. And because of that, they became more clear about their own views, or they felt new empathy or built a new relationship. Or all three of those things, like happened with the women in the abortion talks. Now, theirs is a pretty dramatic example. But I think these stick-with-it moments happen all the time in our lives on a small scale, too. And we want to get better at recognizing them. Can you think of a time when you resisted the urge to back away from a challenging idea or situation? And by leaning into the discomfort, you found something new that's made you a better citizen kinder neighbor or more effective advocate? I'd love to hear it. Email your stick with it story to topofmind at byu.edu. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Cole Cummings, Vanessa Goodman, and James Hoops. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschusel, Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.